Thanks, Nick. Well, I'd love to add my welcome to Andrews and Christine's. My name is Austin, and I'm one of the ministry apprentices here at Auckland EV. It's so great to be able to stand here before you today and to share what I've been learning as I've been studying this passage in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. But we need some help to understand what God has been saying to us, don't we? So why don't we pray and ask Him by His Spirit to help us understand. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what you've been saying to us through your word. We ask, Father, that as we hear you speak, that we would be ever more captivated by Jesus and be astounded at the future that is on offer for those who believe in him. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder how often you think about your future. Are you the kind of person who thinks about your future often? Or maybe you're more of the kind of person who lives in the moment, day by day. And in reality, we probably all live somewhere on the spectrum, and we do a bit of both. For me, I'm generally the kind of person who doesn't dwell too much on the future, which, if you know me, is probably surprising because those of you who know me know that I'm quite the planner. In fact, if you open up my Google Calendar app, then it'll be very clear that this is the case. Because you're suddenly bombarded by a series of colored blocks representing the multiple calendars that I have on my account and the meetings and events that I've planned. Uh, now, don't worry. All of the different colors up on there are just different calendar types. It's not like I'm double booking myself. So if I have a meeting with any one of you, don't worry, it's still on. But just because I plan things well in advance, that doesn't automatically mean that I dwell on the future. It just means that, okay, I have a little bit of organizational skills. But dwelling on the future is when you actually let the vision that you have of the future fill your mind and shape your thoughts and actions. And for me, the future is relegated to a passing glance. I may plan things to happen, but I don't naturally imagine what things could be like. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times when I dwell on the future because the future excites me. I remember getting excited about the first time that I was going to graduate, and I could picture myself thinking, oh, man, how am I going to walk up on stage and shake the person's hand? Uh, or maybe it was the excitement that I had from uh, about to leave my mom's place for the first time and start a flat with a bunch of friends. But I do think that the majority of the time that I dwell on the future is in fact when I'm anxious, when I'm worried about what the future holds. And there are many things that can daunt me as I think about the future. What will I do after I finish my ministry apprenticeship this year? Will I stay in Auckland? Will I have enough money to buy a house eventually? And is that something that I really need? I wonder if you can relate. The times that you dwell on the future, is it because you're excited about what it holds? Are you dreading the potential future that awaits? What we'll see in this passage of 1 Peter is that for those who trust in Jesus, we have so much to look forward to in the future. And that because of this, the way that we live as strangers in this world is radically transformed because we have a living hope 
because God has made us alive in our living Lord Jesus. Let's take a look at 1 Peter so we can see this truth more clearly. Starting with verse 3, we see that Peter opens with praise to God. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might have heard that during the Bible reading, and you're probably thinking, it's a bit of a funny phrase. We don't go around saying, blessed be X or anything like that. But you can think of that phrase, blessed be God, as a phrase declaring God's worthiness to be praised. It's like saying, may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be praised. Already near the beginning of this letter, Peter emphasizes that the primary actor in this story is God. God is the one worthy of praise because he is the one who has done the things that Peter is about to describe. Three reasons that Peter outlines why God is worthy of praise. Number one, God is worthy to be praised because of our new birth into a living hope. Come take a look with me at the rest of verse 3. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See here, God has given us new birth. We've been made alive. We've been born again. We're a new creation, which is incredible if you think about it, because previously we were spiritually dead in our sins. But this is why Peter also says that this new, mer- new birth is because of God's great mercy. We didn't deserve this new birth. Take a look at how Paul speaks about it in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. But God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Once again here, we see that God is the primary actor in this story. And what I mean by this is that God is the one who causes us to be born again, not us. Now, I don't remember anything from when I was born, which is probably a good thing. It doesn't sound like an experience that I'd want to remember personally. But tell me, did I choose to be born? I mean, seems like a silly question. Of course I didn't choose to be born. But so it is with our new birth here in 1 Peter. No person takes any credit for being born again. It's all God's initiative in making that happen. And this is why God is worthy of praise. Now, in saying this, I'm not saying that God somehow bypasses us as if making us robots. No, the Bible holds out both God choosing us and us choosing God. Like we'll see a little later on in this passage. But let's be clear on this. We are only able to choose God because God has first chosen us. Now, being born again means that you start seeing things that you wouldn't normally see, believing things 
that you wouldn't normally believe. It's like someone who's grown up never seeing the world in color, but then getting some lenses and suddenly seeing the world in a rich and striking way. I mean, take a look at all of you here right now. Every week, you come along for a few hours on a Sunday to hear a sermon on God's Word. And if you think about it, that's actually so incredible. There are so many other things that you could be doing on a Sunday evening. But you love hearing sermons because you love hearing God's Word. Or look at the way that you handle money when you love being generous to God's kingdom, not holding on to the security of this world, you're showing that you've been transformed. Maybe you might want to take some time later on in the week and write down even one thing, just one thing, that God has changed in your life since becoming a Christian, since trusting in Jesus, and then praise Him for that. But not only did God give us a new birth, he gave us a new birth into a living hope. Now, I want to hone in on that word hope for a moment, because at this point, it's so easy to let the lens of the world color the way that we read the scriptures, rather than letting the lens of scripture color the way that we see the world. Because so often, when we use the word hope in everyday language, It's referring to a kind of wishful hope. I mean, listen to this exchange. You think the Blues will win the competition this season? Yeah, nah, I don't know. I hope so. I mean, just as much as I hope the Warriors win something, right? (laughs) Now, that's an uncertain hope. It's not guaranteed. Now, I know we did win last month, but that's totally an uncertain hope. There's nothing guaranteed about it. Or you might even say, I hope to get an A plus in this paper. Or probably the most common one that I hear around Auckland is, I hope that it won't rain. (laughs) Well, if you live in Auckland long enough, you'll know that that's definitely a wishful hope. The way that we use hope in each of these circumstances are all uncertain and can be tagged as wishful thinking. Hope for the world is wishful. But not so with this hope that Peter is saying in verse 3, and indeed almost all of the New Testament. The biblical hope that is being referred to here is a certain hope, one that is confident with anticipation of the future. And that's because it's based on an event that's already happened. Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, because he is alive right now, seated at the right hand of God, we have this resurrection hope. We have a living hope, knowing that we who trust in Jesus will one day too be resurrected as Jesus was. And because we have this certain hope, we live radically different lives. Because we know the final outcome. It's like watching a competition, but you already know who the winners are. Now, uh, one of my favorite childhood shows was The Amazing Race. Uh, Some of you had the chance to play on that during UniChurch Conference. Uh, 
Uh, and it's a show where 11 teams of two race around the world to win a million dollars. Not quite the same high stakes at UniChurch Conference, but, <laughs> oh well. Uh, that's what it is in the U.S. show, at least. And I decided to relive some of those memories recently uh, by watching a highlights reel of one of the episodes of season 14. Now, I knew that my favorite team, Tammy and Victor, were going to win this season. And so when I watched that highlights reel and I saw that they were losing and even f fell to last place and the video was trying to make it seem like, oh, no, maybe they were going to be eliminated, I could sit back and go, huh. I know that they're going to win this season, so somehow they managed to uh, come back from this. And I could sit there with confidence because I knew what was going to happen. There's moment-to-moment -moment drama, but you know that even if your team looks like they're losing, they'll ultimately win because you know that they've already won. Do you live your life knowing that the victory has already been won in Christ and that resurrection hope is guaranteed? Is this the hope that fills your heart and mind? Is this the way that you've been viewing the hope that you have in Christ? Not a wishful kind of hope, but one that is certain. And therefore, it's not a dead hope. It's a living one, one that is energizing and active, that permeates your whole life. Well, Peter doesn't stop there with declaring God's worthiness to be praised, as if a living hope is not enough. He goes on to give us the object of our hope. In verse 4, Peter says that God has given us a new birth into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, this language of inheritance is rooted in the Old Testament, particularly around the promises that God made to Israel regarding the promised land. However, while the Israelites were looking forward to the inheritance of an earthly land, we see that the ultimate inheritance is more than that. Take a look at Hebrews 11, which says, These, these people, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, all died in faith although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. But now they desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The inheritance that awaits all believers is the heavenly country, the kingdom of God, and with it, eternal life. Think about how incredible this promise is to the people that Peter is writing to. These are people whom Peter has already identified as strangers at the beginning of the letter, as people who find no true home in this world. But just like Israel, who were homeless and foreigners until they received the promised land, so too are we, who although we are temporary residents now, we have a future inheritance of a heavenly country to look forward to as citizens of heaven in Christ. This inheritance, Peter says, is imperishable. That is, it can't be corrupted. 
It's also undefiled. That is, it won't lose its luster or beauty. And it's also unfading. That is, it will last forever. Peter concludes by saying that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. God himself is the keeper of our inheritance. And in saying all of this, we can hear Peter really emphasize the incredible reward that awaits all believers in heaven. And for those who trust in Christ, there's a great expectation of the future when he returns. The third reason why God is worthy to be praised is because of our salvation. Let's take a look at verse 5. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, it's important here to distinguish between whether the salvation is backward-looking or forward-looking. And what I mean by this is that sometimes, and in fact, I might even say most of the time, when we think of salvation, we think of it as something that's happened in the past. We've been saved or even something that we presently possess. We have salvation. After all, through Jesus' death in our place, we've been saved if we trust in him. However, in the New Testament, the majority of cases for salvation refers to a forward-looking salvation. That is, referring to the future deliverance that will take place for Christians as we are rescued from God's judgment and wrath on the final day. And so it is with this particular case in 1 Peter, where we see that the salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's a future event. And incredibly, Peter has great assurance that this will happen. And that's because he knows that the believer is being guarded by God's power through faith. Now, how does God guard us? By keeping us free from persecution and suffering? No, that can't be right, because we'll see later on, Peter expects the Christian to suffer in this world. No, this protection from God helps us to persevere in our faith, that is, to keep trusting in the only thing that will secure our hope, our inheritance, our salvation, Jesus Christ. Notice here, Peter highlights that the way God's power guards us is through faith. And here, we see the relationship between what we do and what God does. We have faith. That is, we trust in Jesus. But it is God who guards us by his power so that we can have that faith. God chooses to work through the ordinary means of our faith to help us to persevere. Now, perhaps that doesn't bring you assurance because you suddenly feel like that the salvation that you're going to receive is out of your control. But friends, this idea of God choosing those whom he will save and him making sure that they persevere to the end, it's such a comforting truth. Earlier this year, just after Easter, I was feeling exhausted And after Easter hit with my holidays close in sight, I decided to slow down a bit. And amongst the usual busyness of Easter, I woke up feeling tired, and I decided to let my usual routine 
of waking up in the morning and getting ready and reading the Bible and uh, praying to God, I decided to let that slip. Uh, I stopped doing it. But unlike other times where this has happened in my life, even after a few days, I decided not to go back to it. And when my holidays came up, that continued. And you know what was sad about the whole thing? What was sad about uh, the every morning not doing this? I could actually remember making the intentional decision after I walked down the stairs and saw my Bible sitting on the counter and choosing to say no to hearing God speak to me and talking to Him. It was the longest time that I'd gone without hearing from God's Word or talking to Him in prayer. And I felt it. I felt spiritually dry and far from God. Does it sound relatable to you? Times where, for some reason, you take your foot off the pedal and just meander in the Christian race, leaving yourself feeling spiritually dry and not enjoying God. Where's the struggle for you to keep trusting in God? Friends, we may at times face struggles to keep trusting in God, but be encouraged that God guards us by His power to have faith in Jesus. And now, standing before you all today, I can tell you that things have changed in my life since then, that God was gracious in convicting me through a close friend and through a particular sermon in the Gospel of Mark to bring me back to Him. And I can look back at that time and say that it was God who was guarding me through faith. Just as we need God's power to turn from our sins and put our faith in Christ, so too do we need God's power to keep living the Christian life and keep trusting in Christ. Let me say that one more time. Just as we need God's power to turn from our sins and put our faith in Christ, so too do we need God's power to keep living the Christian life and keep trusting in Christ. So the next time you wake up, as you slowly open your eyes, as you're greeted by the morning, and you give thanks to God, and you go and open your Bible and hear from God's Word, know that that only happens because the power of God Himself is guarding you through faith to keep trusting in Christ. The next time you reflect on the hardships that you've gone through in life and realize that even after all of that, after all of that, you're still holding on to Jesus, know that that was God's power. That was the thing that held you through. Know that and be thankful. Praise God for His guarding power that is keeping you for a future salvation. And not only that, but praise Him for the incredible and assured hope, as well as the amazing inheritance we have through Christ. The future for those who put their trust in Christ is never too bleak. It's never too bleak. For we know that one day, one day we'll receive our eternal reward when Jesus returns. So we've just seen how those who trust in Jesus have so much to look forward to in the future. But how does that change the way that we live now? 
This is what Peter goes on to say in the next part of our passage, and that's the idea that Christians can rejoice amidst suffering. Come with me to 1 Peter 1, verse 6. You rejoice in this, even though now, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of the incredible truths about the future in verses 3 to 5 is in these that these Christians were rejoicing, even though they may have been suffering. And specifically in 1 Peter, the context of suffering is suffering for being a Christian, for living the Christian life. You see, for these Christians who trusted in Jesus, rejoicing was the right response. For it was in trusting in Jesus that they knew that they were going to be saved. And this fact led them to rejoice even through suffering, knowing that it won't persist forever. Two truths are encouraging here. Number one, suffering is for a short time. And here, Short doesn't mean that it'll only last a couple of days, but rather short is in in light of the eternity that is at hand. How often I don't remember this, though. And I know for me, in the moment of suffering, my vision gets so clouded that I forget about the promises of God for my future. It's far more easy for me to get caught up in the painful moments of suffering for being a Christian and then pity myself rather than look towards the future and the incredible hope that I have. But I have to continue to remind myself that this life is but a vapor's breath. Here one second, gone the next. Any suffering that we might experience in this world, in this life, it's short in light of eternity. And Peter doesn't downplay the severity of the suffering, and he would know, as someone who was beat up, imprisoned, and eventually crucified for the gospel. But friends, he is realistic about its length. Recognizing the perspective of eternity reminds us that suffering is for a short time. Second encouraging truth is that suffering is necessary. Now, you might hear that, you might think, what? That's not encouraging, Austin. How can that be encouraging? But trust me, it is. Because if suffering is necessary, then that means it isn't meaningless. If suffering is necessary, that means it isn't meaningless. It isn't by a random chance or because of a twist of fate. No, if suffering happens to you for being a Christian or to me, then it's necessary. Acts 14.22 says, Barnabas and Paul strengthened the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Even Peter, later on in chapter 5 of this letter, says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. And Paul, near the end of his life, exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy by saying, In fact, 
all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, just because suffering is necessary doesn't mean that we should all start looking for suffering. The Bible doesn't urge us to do that. But if you're a Christian, if your citizenship is in heaven, then suffering will come to you for being a Christian and living it out. But it will only come as necessary. So don't shy away from suffering you might experience for being a Christian. Now, so often when we think of suffering and persecution, our minds quickly jump to the intense suffering that believers experience in other parts of the world. But while we may not experience this level of suffering here in New Zealand, the suffering that threatens our comfort is sometimes just as dangerous because it's far more insidious and easier to avoid because it seems small and insignificant. In 2018, I was wrapping up my PhD, and this was near the end of the year, and I'd already made the decision to do the ministry apprenticeship. And you can imagine, right, as I ended, up, ended my PhD, I had a lot of conversations with friends, family, and colleagues about what I was going to do next. And a lot of their expectations were, oh, I was going to do this postdoc over here in this country, or maybe I was going to uh, work as a lecturer over here at this uni. And I remember one time, I was out at the university, I was buying some lunch, and uh, one of the food trucks were there near the quad, uh, and they were selling crepes. So I decided to buy a crepe at one of the food stalls at uni, and I was having a conversation with the owner. And we started chatting about what I did and what I was going to do in the future, and then I made a choice. Rather than deciding to censor my words, I thought I'd be bold for Jesus, and I told her that I was going to work for my church next year. And man, the look on her face, she was so shocked. She was taken aback that this person who completed a four-year PhD would go and work for church afterwards. And after serving me my crepe, she called what I was doing a waste of my potential. Now, that seems like a trivial piece of suffering, getting called out like that. But friends, after that conversation, I started to feel a bit of shame. And I started to think about how I could avoid that experience from happening again. And how often can we as Christians in New Zealand feel threatened by such ridicule and instead choose to be like the world, choosing to blend in to avoid suffering? What? Why are you giving so much money away to church? If he saved that money, you'd have a house by now. Come on, just round up your timesheet to 40 hours. It'll keep the boss happy. Stop stressing about it. Jeez. Why aren't you keen for us to share answers? It's a take-home exam. Everyone's doing it. Friends, suffering is necessary. And although the Bible doesn't promise that somehow we'll discern every reason why we suffer the way we do, we're assured that God is working out His plan for us amidst our suffering. And specifically in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, we see that our perseverance in our suffering reveals the character of our faith. The analogy that, Paul, uh, that Peter uses here is one of gold being refined by fire. As the gold is put through the fire, all of the dross, all of the impurities are separated, leaving behind the true genuineness and value of the gold. 
And likewise, so our faith is purified by the suffering that we go through. The question for us all is, are the amazing truths of the future shaping the way that we go through suffering? Are we rejoicing despite any suffering we go through, knowing that even as we suffer for being a Christian, whether it's the ridicule that we experience for talking to people about Jesus, or whether it's just the weird looks that we get for saying that we can't make it to this social event because we choose to come to church, we choose to come to connect group. Or maybe it's just being ostracized by family, friends, or colleagues for just being a Christian. Are we rejoicing, knowing that despite this suffering, it's still worth it because we know Jesus and what we have in him is incomparable. For the believers that Peter is addressing, we see that in verse 8, just like us, they didn't even get a chance to see Jesus. But despite this, they still love him. They still believe in him. And moreover, they rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Because step by step, day by day, after every ounce of suffering they experience for being a Christian in this world, they know that they're slowly receiving the goal of their faith, the salvation of their soul. The question is, will you follow in their example? You might think that Peter would end it here, but he decides to underscore and emphasize the amazing privilege that we have, the privilege of living in this moment of salvation history. Peter tells us that this salvation that we have is incredibly precious because it's something that the Old Testament prophets were searching into by the Holy Spirit. They were prophesying about the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow this suffering. But this prophesying, this, it wasn't so that they could serve themselves, but us here today. Imagine that. The prophets of old, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Nathan, they are actually serving us. So as you read the prophecies of the Old Testament, and as you catch glimpses of the promise of Jesus, the Messiah, God's chosen king, through those prophecies, know that those prophets were serving you. And now, incredibly, the grace that they prophesied about, the suffering and glory of Christ, has now been announced to us. No longer are we in the period of history where we don't know God's chosen Savior, Jesus, People preached the gospel to us through the Spirit. And in the gospel, we hear the message of Jesus, who suffered on the cross for our sins, who now reigns in glory as king over the whole world since his resurrection and ascension. You might be sitting here today, and you may not yet trust in Jesus. And unlike the times in the Old Testament, You've now had the great privilege to clearly hear about Jesus, God's chosen king. And maybe before this day, you didn't pause to consider, actually, what do I have in store for my future? What hope do I have? I want to tell you today that today you have the incredible chance to put your trust in Jesus, who died and was raised 
so that you could be declared right before God. Don't live for this world, but put your trust in him and find in Jesus a steadfast hope and eternal reward for the future. For those of us who do trust in Jesus, I want to urge us to keep looking forward to the future, dwelling on it, dwelling richly in it, knowing what lies in wait for those who keep trusting in Jesus, because we have a living hope, because God has made us alive in our living Lord. Let's pray. Our loving and gracious Father, we come before you now and give you great praise and thanks for what you've promised us in Christ Jesus. We confess that so often we don't recognize how much we have to look forward to in the future, and so don't live lives rejoicing as we ought and praising you as we ought. But thank you that you've spoken your word to us today by your Spirit and revealed to us the new birth that you've given us into a living hope, into an inheritance, and a salvation that will be revealed when our glorious Savior and King Jesus returns. Help us, we pray, as citizens of heaven, to live in this world with an inexpressible joy, knowing these truths, even amidst the suffering we might experience from being strangers in this world, knowing that we have a living hope, because you have made us alive in our living Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.